0: In this episode, we speak with Daphne Dufresne of GenX 360 Capital Partners, a middle market private equity firm that invests in business-to-business services and manufacturing companies throughout North America. Daphne has over 25 years of investment experience and plays a crucial role in all aspects of the firm's investment activities and portfolio management. She led the firm's investments in and chairs the boards of PAG, Genserve, Aero Repair, and Whitsons, Daphne was named one of GrowthCap's top women leaders in growth investing of 2023, and is a champion of the advancement of women and people of color in finance. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe.
1: RJ Lumba is the Managing Partner of GrowthCap and the Executive Chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business.
0: Daphne, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm very excited to chat with you. I think GenX 360 is a very interesting firm. I had a chance to kind of get more fully up to speed on it. Where I'd like to kick off is if you could tell us a bit about the founding of the firm and the founder, Lloyd Trotter, and kind of what his vision was for the firm when he first set it up.
1: Sure. So uh, GenX 360 was founded in 2006. And there were four founders, three that came from GE, uh, the most illustrious, Lloyd Trotter, who was vice chairman, had a 30-year career there running the industrials business, which was over 20 billion and hundreds of thousands of employees. And so he and Ron Blaylock and the two other founders all thought that they could bring to private equity a lot of the operational learnings and experience to the middle market. And so that was the premise. And so that's the founding. And we still are very much operations focused today, where we take a very hands-on approach with our portfolio companies, always looking for ways to improve their operational rigor, ways to improve the markets they serve, the customers they serve. And you know we're also very big on buy and build in the highly fragmented markets.
0: We'll dive into more so the differentiating, I think, characteristics of the firm versus maybe other firms in the market. But before we do that, we'd love to share with the audience a bit more about your background. You've been part of some very reputable, well-known institutions. So we'd love to provide your background. And then maybe we could talk about how those experiences play into your current role today.
1: I would say growing up, I did not know what private equity was, even though I had a mom who worked on Wall Street, she had a back office clerk position. And so the world of finance was was pretty foreign to me. I went to school and got a degree in biomedical engineering. And so my plan was to become an engineer and maybe create the $6 million man or the bionic woman, because those were two shows that I really liked watching when I was a kid. And then my senior year, you know, i had been interning at Pfizer in college. I had had a chance to work on the business side and just found that a lot more interesting. And so started my career with Accenture, worked in a number of different industry groups doing management consulting. And then I went over to Europe, which was supposed to be a six-month fellowship, but I ended up getting a full-time offer and staying there for a year working for the Bank of Scotland in structured finance. And at the time, Bank of Scotland was the market leader providing senior debt and mezzanine debt to buyout transactions. So that's where I learned about private equity. I was working on deals. It was very exciting, but it was from a debt perspective. And I was always more fascinated about the equity story and the equity upside. And so I knew I needed to kind of get to the other side of the balance sheet. And came back to the States, I went to business school and joined a multi-stage fund in Boston called Weston Presidio. And during my time there, I had a chance to work on early stage VC deals. In fact, you know, we funded JetBlue, uh, a startup airline at Weston Presidio. We did some growth equity investments. I was involved with uh, the buyout of Hunter Fan, which is a known uh, ceiling fan company, if you've ever heard of it. I had a great experience it was really where i got to really learn uh the business and i had an opportunity from there to help launch a fund and was one of the founding partners of rlj equity partners which was a lower middle market private equity fund founded by a serial entrepreneur billionaire bob johnson and the carlisle group and so that took me to the dc area was there for over a decade, and then about six and a half, seven years ago, my partners at Gen X kept knocking at the door, and after a few successful lunches, dinners, meetings, I joined Gen X360.
0: Fantastic. And, and I can imagine working with Bob Johnson, I'd be delighted to hear about what that was like.
1: Well, you know, what was really cool was that we were amongst a lot of the various RLJ companies under one roof. And so you had our corner of the building that was private equity across the hall. On the other half of the building was RLJ Lodging Trust, which was a hospitality REIT. So totally different, but they were taking ownership interest in hotels. There were a number of different businesses. You had Bob's son who had launched a clothing and shoe label. And so what was really exciting was just the entrepreneurial activity of all the different businesses that had been launched there.
0: And so what was it about Gen X that you thought like, okay, it's ready to move on in my career. I think this group is going to do great things. What was it about their pitch to you?
1: Gen X excited me for a number of reasons. Um, Number one, it was very appealing to me, the operational value add, having partners that are with you on the deal day one when you first find it and helping to kind of really flush out the value creation strategy, and then being side-by-side with an operations partner throughout the deal. Many situations, you know, I look to the counsel of my operating partners, whether it's Lloyd Trotter or Chuck Casti, on deals where we're dealing with, you know, a very specific issue in the company. And I can lean on their experience of what they did when they were in the seat or, you know, other areas where they've seen things work out or not work out. So the operational value add was very compelling to me. I think another thing was at the time, uh, Gen X was more focused on investing in manufacturing companies, but had an interest in going into business services. And I had done a number of business services companies. And so I liked the fact that I'd be coming in to help really launch and expand a new uh, focus area for the firm.
0: You know, one of the areas we always... Talk about is value creation and, and the capabilities that a firm can extend to their portfolio companies beyond financial capital. Can you tell us a little bit more about those capabilities that Gen X has?
1: Sure. We have an operating toolkit that we use on all of our deals, where you know, we'll first start out by looking at the management team and really assessing whether or not the team that we have when we first meet them have the capability to have the runway to triple or quadruple the size of the company? Because that's typically what we're seeking to do under our ownership. And oftentimes the answer is yes, but there are other times where there could be a need for more support in terms of bringing in other members of the team that can help support and and provide a little more heft or um, experience to, to the management team. So there's everything from management team assessments and bringing on other leaders to the team to looking at any business wants to grow their sales, but you're not going to grow your sales unless you're servicing your existing customers really well. So we look at what are the service criteria that each customer is judging a company and how are we doing? And we spend a lot of time making sure that we are exceeding those service levels. And if you exceed the service levels, then A natural byproduct and outcome is that you should get more sales. Your customers should want to give you more. And the word of mouth will get out that you're an excellent provider. And then that also makes the job of your salespeople a lot easier. And we spend a lot of time looking at the sales team. How are they incented? Are they incented appropriately? Are we making sure that we're getting the outcomes that we want based on the incentive structure that we have? And that can change based on size of company. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time looking there. And then it's all about also making investments. We're not shy to invest in our companies, you know, whether it's adding new capabilities, whether it's adding new geographic locations, whether it's adding just, you know, basic things like, hey, they've been an entrepreneurial business using QuickBooks, and it's now time for a new ERP system, or they've not really looked into using AI and so we're helping introduce them to how they can streamline some of their processes by use of AI
0: so do you divide up uh, you know with the other team members sector coverage so are you predominantly focused on business services versus manufacturing? each of the investment partners
1: have specific areas of interest and mine are business services and also the food space
0: and can you tell us about maybe an investment that you've made that best exemplifies both your expertise in a certain sector, as well as how you've helped create value for the company?
1: Sure. You know, the first investment I made at Gen X was in a business in a space that I had been following, which is just facilities maintenance, where you're doing maintenance and repair. And so I identified the generator services space as an area that not a lot of people were paying attention and looking. So it felt like it was still virgin territory in terms of private equity, but you know, every commercial building needs a generator and many buildings need them for fire and life safety. And so if you think about hospitals, you think about retail, Commercial buildings, office buildings, or apartment buildings, they all have to have standby generators for in the event the power goes out. And so it was a large market, highly fragmented on the service side, but mission critical to customers. And so I think I identified a really cool business where they were fairly small when we got involved. And we've been able to more than quadruple their size over the last five years and done a lot of cool things. We looked at the management team, really like the team that we have and the team that we invested in in 2018. They're still with us today, but we've added a lot more people and added new roles. Like we didn't have a chief commercial officer. We have one today. We have a head of business development. We have a head of integration. You know, we took IT in-house. We now have a head of HR and a head of recruiting. So all these are areas where, you know, these roles didn't exist when we first got involved. But as the company was growing and scaling, again, identifying that we wanted to be four times the size it was at the outset, we knew we would need these skills and these capabilities. And we've been able to successfully do that. We've also done a lot of, of buy and build. We like highly fragmented markets. And so we've been able to approach sometimes small, sometimes not so small, but similar businesses, but that are maybe operating in a different market and convince them that they would want to join our platform at GenServe. And many of them have said yes, and they've been excited about it. And we've done 10 acquisitions to date. And it's just been, you know, a great growth story.
0: You know, doing research on Gen X and just even going through your website and some of the videos you have up there, I really get a sense of like authenticity that comes through with the folks that work at your firm. And I was wondering if that's been a competitive advantage when you're maybe meeting with prospective portfolio companies, prospective investments. Do you think that is the case? Do you think your team, your senior team has an edge in terms of just the ability to, you know, work well with management teams?
1: You know, RJ, it's funny that you say that because we hear all the time that we score high on likability. You know, we walk in the room and we don't come in with a lot of ego. We don't come in telling people that we know their business better than they do, trying to point out things that we would change immediately. You know, we come in really seeking to learn and listen. And that's really our role when we first meet with companies. And, you know, we'll then come back and try to decide, is this, a company or a management team that we can add value to. And sometimes we have to admit to ourselves, you know what, we don't know enough about this space that we're not going to add a lot of value and we step away and we pull back. And so I do think that our team has low ego. We work incredibly hard and, you know, we're, we're fun. We're, we're easy to have a beer with, you know, we, we don't come in with an A-hole label. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: What do you think has been the biggest challenge in co-leading a private equity firm?
1: Like any organization, you have to evolve with the times. And I think private equity as a industry has been through an evolution and we've been going through cycles. I mean, there's been certainly consolidation in private equity, as well as a flourishment of a whole bunch of new firms, you know, so there's a lot more competition. And so you really have to make clear your value proposition founders and owners have a lot of choices. And so how do you stand out? How do you make sure that you're the partner of choice that they want to partner with? Valuations have increased steadily over, you know, the last two decades, right? And so you have to have really strong conviction that you're going to be able to execute on in that value creation plan in order to make money. You know, at the end of the day, we have to do two things for our limited partners. We have to return to them much more than what they gave us at the outset. And we have to leave the companies better than when we found them. And so that means you need the operational prowess, but you also need to be making sound investment decisions where you are underwriting well on the front end and you're knowing when and being smart about when to execute the exit button. Mm
0: -hmm. Are there certain opportunities that when you see them, you immediately know? It's one you want to go after, ones that you would deem are kind of straight down the fairway for Gen X. They've been founder owned and built over decades. And you see a way to really come in and and add value and maybe provide a nice exit for the founder. What is the kind of best type of opportunity for Gen X?
1: You know, we love founder owned businesses. So There's generally a lot of opportunity to professionalize the business. We tend to have a lot of proactive initiatives uh, where I or one of my other partners are running hard at at a particular uh, sector. And so that can lead to proprietary deals. We love that as well because we get to spend a lot more time with the company and get to know them, really hone in on that value creation process. And typically we can get an attractive price in those situations. And then, you know, what I'd say we look for that straight down the fairway is recurring revenue, market leadership, sticky customer relationships, situations where there's some price inelasticity, where, you know, your customers want to stick with you. And if they look at their overall expenditures, you're a small portion, right? They're going to have a need for your business because you're either providing a mission critical service or an essential service where it's not their core competency. They don't really want to do it themselves, but they have to have it. You know, those sorts of characteristics are throughout our portfolio. And so that's why you can look at us and you can see we're in facility services, we're in aviation and, you know, MRO services, we're in food service. You know, we're in a lot of different categories, but that underlying theme of, is it a mission critical service? Yes, it is. You know, in food service, we're we're operating in K to 12 schools. So while the kids go to school to learn, they got to eat at lunchtime, right? And, you know, somebody's got to feed them. And most schools, their core competency is education. You know, they're there to educate the students, to teach the student. Providing food and coming up with menu plans is not necessarily core to what they do. So they outsource that to firms like Whitson's, where we take that on. We make sure we're providing a nutritious meal. We make sure that the kids like it, that it's tasty, right? And mm-hmm. they're in and out in the time frame that's needed so that they can get back to their core competency, which is they're there for learning. So I think you'd find those, you know key themes running across all of our portfolio companies.
0: I'm wondering how technology plays a role into the sectors you focus on. It's almost hard to avoid, you know, the influence of technology, but yet you're not necessarily focused on the tech sector. So how does it play into manufacturing and business services?
1: You know, many of the services that we provide have become tech-enabled over time. Mm -hmm. And so they're not necessarily technology companies, but it would be misleading to say that they're not using technology to deliver what they do. Mm -hmm. And so if I take Whitson's, for example, they've developed a proprietary system internally that helps them with menu planning. And every state that we serve, and sometimes you take it down to the county level, have various different nutritional requirements. You know, some want low sodium, you have to have a certain number of fruits and vegetables. There's just very different requirements. And, you know, unfortunately, the budgets that they have to operate in tend to be very, very tight. And so, being able to put together a meal that meets the nutritional requirements, that is cost-effective, and that we can then go out there and procure the food when you know, we're in a high inflationary environment, it's the proprietary system that we have in-house that's allowing them to input what they need and then spitting out, okay, here's how you do it. And so that system's core to Whitson's being able to execute on its value proposition. Mm-hmm. You know, likewise, I can share with, with Genserve a lot of times when we're looking to buy a particular smaller company to bring into the fold, we find that they're working with clipboards as they go and execute a service delivery at a client. And so, post service, they'll take out their clipboard and they'll manually check boxes or input specific service that they perform, any notes that the client needs you know, our guys are walking around with iPads where they're inputting it directly. They're taking pictures with the iPad immediately. And what that does is it transfers that information to our supervisors back in the office immediately. Those supervisors can then review that information and send it to the client immediately, which means the cycle of getting paid for your service happens immediately. And so those are all examples of nothing rocket science from a technology standpoint, but it's certainly leveraging technology to execute our service.
0: Well, we're coming up on time. I have two final questions I like to ask all the interviewees. And one is, can you tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you?
1: You know, I've been fortunate that I've had probably a lot of people that have had a profound impact, but when You know, when you single it down to one person, it's probably been my mom. She was a single parent immigrant coming from Haiti, and uh, she had to figure out a lot of things on her own for my sister and I. But what she did was she gave us a very stable home. By her actions, she demonstrated an extremely high and hard work ethic. You know, we saw her working all the time, but that didn't stop her from wanting to come home and make us a home cooked meal that didn't stop her from making sure that, you know, we were reading and writing very early and going to school very prepared. And she set the bar high. And so I think her leadership and, and watching her as a role model, you know, again, taught me, you know, you got to work hard in order to, to be successful. Her lessons of frugality in terms of her lifestyle and our lifestyle growing up has taught me to do that. And then, you know, if I think about what I do as an investor, oftentimes, we're investing the money of teachers, you know, we're investing the money of laborers, of firefighters. And, you know, my mom was a back office clerk that never made more than $15,000 a year. And she had to raise two kids in New York City, right? And she very much today relies on her pension in order to survive. So I take very seriously the honor of being able to manage the capital of people who really need this money in order to survive. It's an honor and it's and it's something that, you know, I and, and, you know, all of us in private equity have to take very seriously.
0: Last question. Can you tell us about a, a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? So many
1: things. I'm passionate about financial literacy. You know, I think it's just such a sad thing that we're not taught in schools, basic things like credit <laughs> and how important credit is, you know, things about budgeting. And so I'm very big on just teaching financial literacy as young and as early as possible and, and as late as possible. Like there are so many lessons you can be later in your life and still need some of those tools. So, you know, I think that's something that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. Haiti as a country has you know, been under some hardship more recently. And I'm passionate about figuring out how those of us that are in the diaspora across the globe can be helpful to our home country and, and you know, help rebuild. I'm passionate about entrepreneurship and just making sure that any and everybody who wants to start a business can. I mean, that was really what started me in private equity or venture capital in the early days of just being excited about the passion that entrepreneurs bring to their companies, to their mission, to their ideas every day.
0: Excellent, that's a great note to end on. Well, Daphne, wanna thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. I know our audience will find this very insightful.
1: RJ, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure speaking with you.